Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The price of real estate in our region's ski towns is squeezing out some longtime residents. Even if we try to keep chugging along, we're eventually going to hit a point where we just don't make enough money to live here anymore. On today's show, we hear more about the impact of high housing costs. And we explore the dynamics of Colorado's newest congressional district. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado's new 8th Congressional District is unique. It includes some of the state's fastest-growing cities, and it's projected to be politically competitive. It's also home to more Latino voters than any other district. KUNC's Scott Franz has more on what issues this growing group of voters is thinking about and what that means for the candidates who run here. Greeley resident Stacy Suniga has always felt like she was living in a poorly drawn congressional district. She's a former city council member and leader of the Latino Coalition of Weld County. I think four seemed to be really uh, uh, gerrymandered because you took this area and then you went around the Denver area and you ended up in Castle Rock. What kind of interest do you know people who work here or live here and work in the fields or work at a beef plant have to do with Castle Rock, a mountain community. Suniga started the group because it's been hard for Latinos, including herself, to win political races, even for local seats. And people say, when we complain that we don't have anybody on council that looks like us, or on the school board, everybody is white, well, you have the opportunities to run. They just need to get out and run, that's not true. It's not the same opportunities. We're in downtown Greeley because she wants to point out the new Latino-owned businesses that are opening up and why she thinks they need more representation at the highest levels of government. She says current 4th District Representative Ken Buck has not been representing the interest of the community as much as she'd like. He doesn't represent the, the BIPOC community. He just doesn't. You know, he votes against things that could help people of color. But that's about to change. Greeley and other communities stretching down the I-25 corridor to North Denver will soon be in the 8th Congressional District, a district where Latinos make up almost 39% of the electorate. Latinos uh, also are interested in political process and are looking to be engaged. That's Rob Preuss. He's a professor at Metro State University in Denver. We have affordable housing, reducing homelessness, creating jobs, and keeping us safe from the coronavirus. Preuss was part of the first ever Latino policy agenda this fall, an event to highlight the results of a political survey of 1,000 Latinos statewide. You can see the top four priorities for the federal level were immigration, jobs in the economy, discrimination and racial justice, and dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. On the West Slope, the top local priority was getting businesses open during the pandemic, while those living in the new congressional district say it's affordable housing. And many here want to have a Latino representative. Meanwhile, many Latinos in northern Colorado are not waiting for candidates to come to them. 
More than 60 of them attended a virtual meeting this month to start a brand new Chamber of Commerce representing businesses in Greeley, Fort Collins, and Windsor. The official name for them will be NOCO, Latino Chamber of Commerce in English, and it's going to be NOCO, Cámara de Comercio Latina in Spanish. Helping to organize things is Jose Luis Ramos. He's a bilingual business specialist in Fort Collins. It's growing. Over the last year, I have helped at least uh, 52 new companies have started because uh, it's people that got laid off during COVID and they didn't know what to do and they had to do something. So they say, you know, I want to start my own company. But part of the problem, he says, is many of them didn't have the time or resources to fill out the paperwork needed to get relief during the pandemic. Talking to them about it, the idea came out to say, okay, so uh, if we would have uh, a chamber of commerce, a Latino chamber of commerce, things will be different because then we will have a body that will have one voice. I'm hopeful. You know, I want uh, to see more opportunities for all. Back in Greeley, Stacy Suniga is also growing her Latino advocacy group with recent vaccine clinics and candidate forums for local issues. And she's looking ahead to 2022. I want the new representative to understand that we are a community that's different than the Denver Metro. You know, or Boulder or Fort Collins, you know, we, we have a, it's a true melting pot and, and a lot of these workers, you know, work in hard, hard workers working in hard conditions. And this opportunity isn't only in the 8th District. According to the 2020 census, Latinos now make up 22% of the state's population. I'm Scott Franz in Greeley. Learning to share, forging friendships, phonetics, and early reading. These are some things we might work on in preschool, kindergarten, or first grade. Many of us were fortunate to get these lessons in bright, welcoming classrooms surrounded by our peers. But for young students who went through classes remotely over the last year because of the pandemic, these skills had to be absorbed through a computer screen. Most schools in Colorado returned to in-person learning in the fall, which for some students meant a return to a routine closer to the pre-pandemic normal. But young students who spent their formative preschool, kindergarten, or first grade year at home are experiencing a more stark adjustment. We're joined now by two teachers who are helping their young students navigate this change. Jennifer Hughes is a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton. Ivory Jarman is an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary in Southeast Denver. Ivory, let me start with you. How did school change for you in the last year? What kind of when the pandemic hit and then in the months following? When the pandemic hit, I actually was pregnant. So I was uh, entering my third trimester when they shut schools down. The first transition wasn't as bad because the students that I had at the time were very familiar with the technology that we used in the classroom. So when we transitioned to being remote, it wasn't as big of a shift for them. And then my the next year I was on maternity leave and decided to stay out for the entire year um, just as a safety precaution for myself and for my daughter. Now, Jennifer Hughes, how about you? How did school change for you right after the pandemic? I noticed a large difference in the ability, the academic ability of children they were behind their peers from previous years for the same age. 
They were also more social, emotionally fragile and sensitive. There seems to be a difficulty on my part of holding them accountable because they take it personally when it's not intended to be meant so. And so it's, it's a fine line to walk between mentoring them and adjusting instruction without making them feel like they've done something wrong. Well, I want to talk a little more about the return to school this year. Jennifer, how is Butler Elementary doing things differently with the kids back in person? Now that we're back in person this year, it's very much like pre-pandemic school for us. We aren't wearing masks, but we are using more technology than we have in the past. One of the positives of the pandemic was an increase in the use of technology and the comfort level of both instructors and children with technology. So they can use those platforms. As Ivory talked about Class Dojo and Seesaw. Ivory, does that kind of sound similar to your experience and or what other kinds of changes has Samuels Elementary implemented? It does sound very similar. We are still in masks and we still have a lot of those um, safety protocols in place. The biggest shift for us, we are very big on having our families and community members come into the building to do various activities. And that's something that we've really not been able to do because families are still not allowed to come into the building, only students. So that has been a really big shift. But um, we have really started to focus more on how that social emotional learning is throughout all parts of our day. So we do an opening community circle in the morning in every classroom, but then we are also seeing now how we can transfer some of the skills that we're learning into the academic parts of our day to really keep that, really help with what Jennifer was saying, that fragile piece with their social emotional right now, so that they know that we truly care about them. We care about how they're feeling. We've also implemented a emotional social program that we use daily to help our students adjust to these changes because it can be very scary for them. Absolutely. What does that look like? Do you just have them um, sort of check in and talk about what they're feeling? For Butler Elementary, we have a curriculum called PATHS, and it has lessons about emotional regulation, different types of emotions, that it's okay to feel emotions. It's how we respond to those emotions that matters. That's the first part of our conversation with educators helping their young students adjust to being back in the classroom. We'll continue in just a moment after a short break. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Most schools in Colorado return to in-person instruction in the fall. And some young students who spent a year of preschool, kindergarten, or first grade at home are having a tougher time adjusting to being back in an actual classroom. To learn more about what it's been like, we're talking with Jennifer Hughes, a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton, and Ivory Jarman, an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary School in Denver. You both work with kids who are in such a critical stage of early development. Could you each tell me what kinds of social and emotional skills students typically learn in your grades? Jennifer, let's start with you. They learn a lot of self-regulation, how to interact with peers, and that was one of the large differences I noticed from pre to post pandemic, is that they don't often have the skills to navigate conflict. As young children, this is something they have to learn anyway, 
But this is especially difficult now because they don't have the words because they were in their home environment for such an extended period of time. And Ivory, I'll toss that question to you as well. What kind of social and emotional skills are students learning and, and cementing in, in kindergarten? So at Samuels Elementary, we do second step as our social emotional curriculum. And um, they start the year learning skills for learning. So it really talks about what does being a learner look like? What does it sound like? Um, they start to shift into feelings. So being able to identify how someone else is feeling through their body language and their facial cues, which has been really powerful because I think right now when they notice that somebody's upset, we've kind of shifted to what you do then when that person's upset. You know, can you be a friend and help them out? Um, or do you see that they need space and maybe you need to leave them alone? This program, all it builds among our grade levels. And this is the third year that we've used second step. So we're really starting to see alignment through ECE all the way to fifth grade, which has been great. Well, I imagine you have students now who just have not been in a school setting or around other children their age because of the pandemic. Um, and I want to ask about that. Jennifer, you know, for you, what social and emotional changes have you noticed in your students who are back in person this year? I've noticed they're more excited to be in school. They really love interacting with friends. They are also very excited to do more academic tasks than in the past. So that's a shift for me because they just seem happier to be there. They have they seem happier to interact with peers and adults, and they do seem to have stronger family bases. In some cases, the families are more involved because we do have a lot of extracurricular activities. We had a heritage night recently, and there was a huge amount of involvement. So socially and emotionally, I feel like the community has really come together during this time to support our students, and we can see it in our classrooms. And Ivory, what about you? Were you noticing social and emotional changes, uh, differences in the development of your kindergartners this year? I definitely see that they are more excited to be at school. Like you were saying, you know, when you're not remote, you could interact with your peers, but it's a different type of interaction, especially at this early age. They really like to give you, one example would be giving each other hugs. I've seen that a lot more. You know, when we went into remote learning, a lot of students would say, I just miss seeing my friends because it's different to see your friends on the computer than it is to see them in person. Jennifer, have you had to change any of your subject matter or lesson plans to fit the needs of your students this year? Absolutely, I have. I have had to really go back and revisit earlier concepts because many of the students have gaps because although their parents did their very best, if your parent had to go to work, there was no way you could be on your computer with your child all day like a teacher. So even though parents did their best, there are still huge gaps in the learning of students. And we have to fill in those foundational gaps now. So at Butler, we have a meeting intervention. We have small group time. We have what we call win time, what I need time to try to fill those gaps in as many students as we can for reading and math especially, because the reading will help with the writing. We've noticed a large gap in number sense in a lot of our students that they can't 
tell us things that are developmentally appropriate that in years past other second graders could? I mean, really, we're seeing the same gaps that we're seeing with um, Jennifer. I think in the best part about kindergarten is this is really that foundational level. So if a student didn't go to ECE, it's not the end of the world. If they were in daycare before, you know, it's it's not the end of the world that they were just coming now. But in our first and our second grade classes, we as well have interventionists that are really trying to fill those gaps because remote learning does not lend itself to best instruction for reading. And it doesn't lend itself to best instruction for writing or for math. There's been a lot of reporting on school closures and remote learning having a greater impact on low-income students and students of color. Jennifer, have you noticed any discrepancies like that? Yes, I really have. I, I feel that remote learning and school closures had a much more severe effect on poor students than on middle class or wealthy students. Parents who were able to devote more time because they didn't have to go to work or they had the resources to provide more support, those children did better online. And the ones who did not, did not do as well. So I do feel that there is definitely a disparaging effect from COVID on our demographics. Ivory, have you noticed anything similar? And and if so, what does that look like among your students? I think it was really when we first went on to um, lockdown, students who had the ability to join us for our online learning and students who did not have that ability. And I think that was really disheartening because it was this very big uncontrollable. And as much as we wanted to, you know, we would make paper copies for parents who didn't have access to internet. At the time, we didn't have enough technology uh, for families. Really, if you didn't already have technology in your home, internet access, then you just weren't able to even be a part of the remote learning. We had students that just kind of disappeared. We couldn't get a hold of them. We couldn't figure out where they went. You know, as teachers, we care so much about our students and making sure that they're okay and they're safe. And to just have no idea where they are was a horrible feeling. I think people forget teachers aren't just there, you know, handing out instruction, but, you know, you truly do um, care about the well-being of each of these children. Switching gears just a bit, Ivory, I wanted to ask about the um, Black Excellence Resolution 2019 uh, Denver Public Schools, uh, which is the district that you worked in, passed this resolution. It requires schools to develop plans to boost the success of Black students. I understand this is something you've been working on at Samuels Elementary. Can you tell us a bit about that and how how this works? Yes. So part of our Black Excellence Plan at um, Samuels has really been focused on really getting our teachers to make stronger connections with all students, but especially our black and brown students. And last year um, we took part in a book study. This year we are also taking part in another book study and really just looking at what disparities, what barriers have been in place for long, long, long time (laughs) for our um, black and brown students. We're starting to shift this year into having more action, actionable steps. So we did something called a 360 spreadsheet where it really gave teachers the opportunity to meet with students and just get to know them in a 
in a non-academic sense and to start to make those connections with our students. And now we have our fall conferences coming up and we have kind of shifted, you know, conferences, parents usually come and just get this information. It's not always this like back and forth conversation. It's like, this is your 15 minutes. This is what your student did. This is what they need to do. So we're really trying to um, shift that. And we gave parents three questions for them to answer. So the three questions are, what is excellence for your child? And what is something you feel proud of? What changes would you like to see in our classroom or school and why? And what feedback do you have for me to improve your child's experience or school in general? We are using these questions really as, yes, let's talk about the successes your student has had. And let's also talk about maybe some areas to focus on. And we've opened it to all families, but we're really focusing on our black and brown students. That was Jennifer Hughes, a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton, and Ivory Jarman, an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary in Southeast Denver. Real estate prices have reached new heights in many of our region's ski towns. Across eight mountain towns in Colorado last year, more than $15 billion in property sales contributed to a historic increase from the year before. In Jackson Hole, Wyoming, buyers spent a record $2 billion in the first nine months of 2021. But despite the high sales volume and even higher home prices, the number of homes on the market is at an all-time low. And as Maggie Mullen reports, these factors are pricing out many longtime residents. Brandy Bortz has lived in Jackson since the 1990s. Getting work has never been a problem, but finding housing has always been complicated. A few years ago, she started writing down a list of all the places she'd lived there. My last move was number 40 in 25 years. I've moved so many times that it's just crushing. (laughs) Bortz has had to quickly find a new place when rent increased and has had leases broken when a property was sold to a new owner. The last place she lived had mold that caused some health problems. She says that was the last straw. It's time to move on, and that hurts my heart a little bit to say that, but it's a big world out there. Renters move around a lot in Jackson out of necessity. It's about finding a more affordable spot, somewhere slightly roomier, or a place that doesn't involve commuting over a dangerous mountain pass. Now, many longtime renters are simply packing up and leaving town instead. For some, the pandemic or the big money pouring into Jackson pushed them over the edge. The wealth wasn't really veiled anymore. There was a lot of outside investment and speculative development that came in and just started bulldozing old buildings and putting up boxes. That's Ryan Dorgan. He moved to town at the end of 2015 and met his now partner, Emily Muir, while they were working at the Jackson Hole News and Guide. Like so many, Muir says their time in the valley was characterized by unparalleled outdoor access. Skinning up Snow King and being able to ski down on, you know, a beautiful snowy day and then go into work casually at 11 (laughs) a.m. That's probably um, up there as far as some of my fondest memories. They had good jobs, but had to move around a lot to make it work. Things became slightly more affordable after they moved in together. At one point, they shared a three-bedroom trailer with three other people. Splitting a small house 
with a lot of people made rent reasonable to what we were (laughs) being paid. So there for a little bit, it was actually affordable. Meanwhile, they tried to buy a place. They put in an offer on a house in Victor, Idaho, but were beaten out. They spent a few years with a local affordable housing program, but didn't have success there either. Eventually, Dorgan says they came to a realization. The floor price of that housing has now doubled almost overnight. So like, even if we try to keep chugging along, we're eventually going to hit a point where we just don't make enough money to live here anymore. So last spring, they decided to leave Jackson. They now live in our south of Indianapolis. Meanwhile, some people are trying to preserve the area's affordable homes. Esther Judge Lennox realized that when properties in Jackson get bought up, it's often for the lot, not the structure. Many homes and cabins have been torn down to make room for new, larger builds. That's where her group, Shacks on Racks, can come in. We're in Wilson this morning getting ready to relocate this wonderful structure. Judge Lennox started the nonprofit to help relocate homes that would otherwise be raised, like this one in a community next to Jackson. On this day, she's standing next to a semi-truck loaded with a two-bedroom house that's headed for Idaho. Judge Lennox knows it won't solve the entire housing equation, but it is something. Honk if you see us coming down the highway. Others have proposed different solutions, like a sales tax on high-priced properties. Those funds could be used to address the affordable housing crisis. Even if the community finds a long-term solution, it won't be in time for the people that have already left. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. KUNC is a part of the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find more reporting from across our region at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we're going to share some of our very favorite pieces we worked on this past year. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.